And yet, as you know, you and I both know that there are many times when we just don't take him into account. We're faced with a decision in life, and we forget in that moment what God is like, what God does, and how that impacts who we are and what we do. And so we make decisions in that moment that make perfect sense to us, but they're decisions that have nothing to do with him. And in that sense, we are now trying to live in a world that doesn't exist. What is that called? That's called a fantasy world, which means we end up doing things that ultimately don't work out well, that end up impacting us and the people around us in negative ways. Here's the good news of our God. He understands that it's very easy for us to forget him, and he doesn't hold that against us. And so you come across passages in Scripture, like Psalm 103, where you're told, verse 2, to bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. You think forget not. That's kind of an odd phrase. What does that mean? It means remember. And so here in Scripture, you have a, uh, a case where you've got a person telling themselves, remember, O my soul, remember, remember all of God's benefits. He's urging himself, take an active part in remembering who God is, because this is part of the key to living well. And then Psalmist goes on and lists out a number of God's benefits. He says, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And he's saying, here's the kind of God we have. Here's the kind of stuff that he does. He forgives, he redeems, he loves, he's merciful, satisfies and renews you. He works to bring justice. And you need to remember all of that because as you remember that, it impacts how you live. And yet if you forget, and it's easy to do that in a broken world, it means that you're going to end up doing things that are not helpful. You'll try to hide what you do wrong. You'll cover it up, make sure no one sees, pull away from people. You'll be dishonest about that part of yourself in relationships. Why? Because you forget that God forgives all your iniquity. And you forget that if he forgives it, you don't have to hide it. Or you end up working hard at image management, projecting a positive image to others that's also not true because you forget that God redeems. And if he redeems you, you can afford to let other people see you, to see the real you, warts and all. Or you try to earn people's love because you forget that God loves, that he's steadfast in love, that he doesn't tie his love to your performance or make it conditional. That's always true regardless of how anyone else treats you. Or you work hard to make up for your failures because you forget that he is merciful. Or you'll lose yourself, entertainment, food, alcohol, sex, because you forget that he satisfies you, that he renews you. Or you'll put all of your trust for the future in a world leader, a promising politician. You'll overload all of your hopes and dreams onto a person because you forget that it's God who promises to work righteousness and justice. In other words, forget what he's like, and you will look for substitute ways to make your life work, and you'll discover, what, that none of them work, that they all lead to outcomes that just frustrate you and hurt you. And God knows that. That's why he tells you here in this passage, forget not, remember, 
Remember what I'm like, he says. Remember so that you can live in the real world that I make. Remember so that your life works. That's why God tells you what he's like. It's so that you really know him. Now, you're not just taking some wild guesses at him, but that you're able to know him and base your life on something solid. That's what we're doing this fall. We're actively taking time to remember what he's like. And the psalmist ends this section by saying, God made known his ways. He revealed himself, made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. That's why today we're going back to the life of Moses to see some of what God revealed there. We're going to look at what we need to remember about our God. And we're going to look at this from three directions today. First, we're going to look at who God reveals himself to, the kind of person God reveals himself to. Second, we're going to look at what God reveals about himself. And third, we're going to think together about how he can reveal that. So three things for today. Who God reveals himself to, what he reveals, and how he can actually do that. So let's start with who. Who's Moses? Moses is a man who had a job that was huge. We just heard in Exodus 2 and 3 that God cares about his people. It's another thing that he reveals about himself. That Exodus 3, 7, he's the God who sees the affliction of his people. He hears their cry because of their taskmasters. He knows their sufferings, and he comes to do something about it. He comes down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. And God's telling you, this is who I am. This is my heart for my people. Now, at that time, the Israelites were living under an Egyptian pharaoh who was oppressing them violently. He enslaved them, murdered their children, was scared that they were going to overrun his people. And it's against that ugly, horrible backdrop that God then reveals his heart to his people. That he's all about saving his people out of that life in order to bring them into a good place where they can live a better life. And his intention here that he's very explicit about is to use Moses to do that. Now, who is Moses? Moses is someone who already had a sense that that's what God wanted to do. He was an Israelite. He had been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised as an Egyptian prince, but he never forgot where he came from. If you read over in the book of Acts, chapter 7, you get a summary there of what I just read to you in chapter 2, that at age 40, Moses left the palace to visit his people. And when he saw an Egyptian oppressing one of them, he struck him down. And he did so, Acts 7.25, because he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So at the time when Moses killed an Egyptian, 40 years old, he had a sense that God wanted to deliver the Israelites through him. He had a sense that he had a divine calling to deliver his people from slavery. So when he sees this Egyptian oppressing an Israelite, he decided, I'm going to do something about that. He decided that he was equipped to do something about it, and that the time for doing something was now. So he jumped in, he used the strength that he had, and he killed a man. And it all backfired on him. He discovered then that the Israelites don't want him. That after what he's just done, they don't trust him. They're already living under one murderous prince, and they decide we don't want anything to do with another one. But now that he's done that, Egypt also doesn't want him. 
Moses just set himself up as the champion of the people that Pharaoh's afraid of, and in doing that, Moses has cast himself as a rival to Pharaoh. And it's also utterly futile. You think, what was he thinking was going to happen when he killed that man? He just started a war against the superpower of his day. Did he really expect the oppressed Israelites to rise up and join him in this one-man war? You realize that would be suicidal for them. Or did he think that single-handedly he could disable or remove all of the political, all of the military machinery that was directed against his people? On his own, he is nowhere near big enough for that. But in the moment, he thought he was big enough to tackle the injustice that was right in front of him only to discover that he wasn't. And he ended up running away to Midian. That's where we find him in chapter 3. He's taking care of someone else's sheep, his father-in-law's sheep. He's married now. When you do the math, you realize it's been a while. He's, it's now 40 years later. He's 80 years old. Earlier, he had been raised at the center of the known world of his day, and he had access to everything that it offered. He had access to the best education, to the best standard of living that the world had to offer. He had a position of power, respect, and authority. And now here he is on the backside of a desert, filling his days with one of the lowliest occupations that you can imagine. He's lost his youth, lost his strength. Worse, he's lost his passion to be used by God to see God's kingdom advance on this earth. And it's that moment when he has nothing to offer, it's that moment that God comes to him to tell him that the time has come to take back up the calling that he knew he had 40 years ago. But at this point, Moses wants nothing to do with it. He's not super positive in chapter 3, hedges gives you a glimpse of what's going on inside of himself. He tells God, verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's doing now the exact same thing that he did 40 years earlier. He is still approaching the world the same way, still comparing. He's looking at himself, he's looking at the situation that God's putting him in, and he's comparing the two to see if he's able to handle what's in front of him. This time, however, instead of plowing ahead, believing that he's big enough to handle it, his thinking is reversed. He's now certain that this situation is way too big for him. Who am I? God, look at me. I'm not a prince anymore. I don't have the unlimited resources I once did. The connections I had, they're all gone. I don't have my youth, my strength. If I couldn't handle the job before when I had all of that, I certainly can't handle it now. God tries really hard to encourage him, tells him, verse 12, that he'll be with him. He takes the rest of the chapter to tell him what to do, who to go to, and what to say to them. And in response, chapter 4, we didn't read that, Moses pushes back over and over and over again. He raises one objection after another as to why this just isn't going to work. So, for instance, verse 1, he says, what if the Israelites will not believe me or listen to my voice? If they say, the Lord did not appear to you, he objects. So God gives him a sign for the Israelites. But then verse 10, Moses says, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. 
either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and of tongue. God promises it's okay, I'll teach you what to say. To which Moses finally gets down to the bottom line, verse 13, and says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Yet the picture here in chapter 4, he's no longer the reckless young man that he was. The one who raced in aggressively, arrogantly thinking, I got this. Now he's retreating, retiring, pulling back, wants nothing to do with this whole thing, not interested in what God's called him to do. And make sure you don't look at chapter 4, Moses, and think, okay, well, in his youth he was arrogant, now he's humble. This is not humility. When God tells you to go and you say no, that's not humble. That's still arrogant. It's still you saying to God, I know what you think is a good idea, but I disagree, so no, I'm not going to do that. He's anything but humble. And that's when you suddenly realize that chapter 2 Moses and chapter 4 Moses have different reactions to life. One is reckless, one is fearful. But those two very different reactions grow out of the same basic approach to life. To asking whether or not he thinks that he has the resources in himself that he needs to deal with the situation that's in front of him. In the first instance, in chapter 2, he thinks he has what it takes to pull off, pull it off, that he is big enough. That led him to a place of overweening self-confidence. In the second instance, chapter 4, he looks at himself, looks at Egypt, finally realizes that Egypt's really too big to take on, and it leads to paralysis, wanting to stay under the radar out here in the wilderness, to have no impact on the world while God's people suffer and are oppressed when they don't have to be thinking that you can bring the kingdom of God to earth by your own might and effort is arrogant. But thinking that there's nothing you can do when God says go now is equally arrogant. It's your thinking, your assessment. It's you thinking that your assessment is still what matters. It just looks different from the reckless form of arrogance. One ends up actively hurting people by being too aggressive using methods that God doesn't to run over top of people. The other passively hurts people by not offering them the help they need. And so you end up pulling back, fearful of doing anything. Those endpoints look so different, but you get to both of them. Aggression, passivity, recklessness, fearfulness, through the same calculus. In both cases, you assess yourself and what you're facing in life without taking God into account, without factoring in who he is and what he's doing. And if you and I are honest, all of us know what it's like for God to give us something that's way too big for us to deal with. He's called each of us to make a difference where we live. Over and over, you read scripture and realize that his goal is not to save us and then just have us sort of hang out here on earth waiting to die so that we can go to heaven for when life really starts. Instead, we realize that he has called us to take the life that he gives to us now and then enter into this world as what? As his ambassadors, as his representatives, 
maybe not to be used to rescue an entire oppressed people, but to do far more than simply exist. To not only pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but to live out that will on this earth in such a way that it impacts the people around us. So it gives them a chance to see who God is and what he's up to as they watch what he does by transforming an individual. That's the focus of our CGs this fall. It's on being missional, on working to make an impact here for the one who has rescued us from the evil and darkness that used to oppress us. Our focus in the CG is to practice being intentional, reaching outside of ourselves to those who don't yet know Jesus, on recognizing that we are not here for ourselves. Our CGs are not just for our benefit at renewal, but that God has left us here for the sake of what? For the sake of the people around us. Now, why are we being intentional all fall long? Because it's very easy for us in our groups to become inward-oriented. So many reasons to focus on ourselves rather than on our impact on our communities. And so we can easily tell ourselves that, you know what, our, our lives are busy. They are way too full. We're tired we have demanding jobs, demanding families. We're just too busy to reach out to anyone else. Or we, we have new people in our groups, people we don't really know super well yet. And so maybe, maybe we should just take another semester, get to know each other a little bit better before we think about reaching out. Or we all realize that in the suburbs, it's just hard to connect with our neighbors. We're busy, they're busy. Hardly ever see each other. You have to make a real effort to go and engage someone. Or we'll tell ourselves they're probably not interested in getting to know us. They might even be antagonistic toward believers. Certainly won't want to hear anything from us. And so it's just easier to come out to CG and not be missional. To hang out with people that we're comfortable with. Kick back, relax, and say to God, who am I that I should go to anyone else? In other words, it's really easy for us, like Moses, to make a purely horizontal assessment, to evaluate our talents and our abilities, and then look at the world and think, there's no way that I can make a bit of difference, a bit of an impact on that. I might as well not even try, Lord, please send someone else. And we miss the fact that God never calls us to do something without first giving us everything that we need. And the first thing that he gives us is himself. It's exactly what Moses needs. He has not been factoring God into the picture, and so he needs a fresh revelation of God, which is what I need, and I assume it's also what the rest of us need as well. That's point one, the kind of people who God reveals himself to. Point two, what he reveals about himself. What do you think people need who are facing a situation that's too big for him, them? Now, there are actually, if you go through this passage, there are a lot of things that he says about himself. Like what I had said earlier about him being someone who cares deeply for his people, who cares deeply what their lives on earth are like. That's something that you need to know if you're going to take seriously that he's calling you to impact the world around you. You have to know, you have to remember that you're dealing with a God who initiates, who moves toward people, 
to bring them out of darkness. You have to remember, this is not your idea. It's his. And if it's his, that means it's really going to happen. You're not being asked to do something all on your own, something that's way above your pay grade. What are you being asked? You're being invited to work alongside God in what he's already decided to do. It's a really important part of what God shows you about himself in this passage. A lot of other things here as well. We're just going to focus on three this morning briefly. We'll look at his beauty, his self-existence, and his holiness. First, there's the beauty of God, the allure of God. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And he said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Moses sees a great sight. Other translations will say this is a remarkable sight. This is something that he's never seen before, a fire in a bush that doesn't consume the bush. God chooses this man who has factored him out of the picture and he chooses to give him a picture of something that's compelling, something that's drawing, engaging. You all know this. There's something about fire, about flame, that draws people around to it, not just for its warmth, but because it's beautiful. Sally and I were just in an Airbnb a couple weeks ago. They had an electric fireplace in the living room. You ever see one of those, or, or maybe you have one? It's a space heater. It's got a plug in the back plugs into the wall, um, but the space heater is shaped in the form of a fireplace and it has various kinds of flames in it that aren't real, but they look real. They're fake flames, and you can adjust the flames. I think this had like five or six settings, different colors, different heights. There's one thing that's the same about all of those flames, however, and that is what? They're not necessary to the overall functioning of the space heater. They're not there for heat. They don't produce any. What are they there for? They're there for show. It's a heater with a show. Why? Because there's something captivating about flame, something that draws you in, that, that makes you just sort of want to watch it. You want to see more. You want to move closer. Or you can think here about a child at an early birthday party where you have to just keep pulling them back from the candles because they want to touch. Or you realize we never grow out of that. You can think about a teenager with a fire pit who has to keep poking at the thing the entire time or an adult who has to keep poking at it. There's something about fire that's what, it's mesmerizing. It draws you in, it's beautiful. When God appears as a flame, especially a flame that doesn't act like a normal flame, he's saying in picture form to Moses, there's more. There's more to desert, more to life than desert, more to life than sheep. More to life than the daily 9 to 5, 8 to 6 that everyone else is all wrapped up in. <laughs> There's life with me that's wild, that pulls you in, that's beautiful. There's life that you want more of. It's easy to forget in this world. We forget that a life with God is engaging, that it's wonderful, satisfying. Instead, we let the people around us tell us what a life with God is like that it's boring, it's no fun, that God's no fun, that following God is predictable, regimented, routine, monotonous, that there's no spontaneity there, 
that it's drudgery, dreary, that obeying God is what? It's lifeless, it's dull, has no spark. That if you follow the Lord, you had better learn to like the color gray because that's all you're ever going to see from here on out. It's what everyone tells you life with God is like, and we let ourselves forget. We forget passages like Psalm 1611 that tell us that in God's presence there is fullness of joy, that at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. God knows we forget, and so he reminds Moses what he's like. Moses has been where? He's been in the wilderness watching sheep every day for decades. And what he needs in that moment is an infusion of beauty, of glory. He needs a reminder of the source of joy and life, and most of us need that too. We face the grind of endless homework assignments that just seem to stretch off into the distance forever. Or we face one more diaper to change that looks and smells exactly like the last several thousand have. Or we have to clean the same places in the same house or wake up at the same time and go to work at the same place to deal with the same never satisfied customers. And we start to long for some, some kind of life somewhere, some kind of release. The world says this world's enough. Lose yourself in it. It'll satisfy you. And yet if you've tried to be satisfied by this world, you realize it never does. You realize that the first bowl of ice cream is nice. The fifth bowl is not. And God comes along and says, there is more. (laughs) It's just not here. This world is the appetizer that points you to me. I'm the real meal. I'm what your soul hungers for. I'm the only one who can really satisfy you. And I'm the one who wants to satisfy you. Moses, come over. Take a look. Moses needed to know that there was more than sand and sheep, more than oppression and slavery. He needed to know that the world he knew, broken and hurtful, is not what God intended, that there's more with God, that there's a world of life, a world of beauty. And it's a world that God does not hoard, but it's a world that God wants to share that he wants to free his people from misery so that they can share in this world with him. And that's the impact that he's calling Moses to have, to bring people into a world that they didn't think was possible, one that could not exist, one that's beyond their wildest dreams. And so God revealed himself, showed some of his beauty so that Moses, so that you and I, would realize that life is better, more rich, more satisfying, more exciting where God is than where he isn't. If you're going to take God up on his desire to use you to impact others, you're going to need a fresh revelation of his wonder that you then invite other people into. That's one thing God revealed about himself. What else? He reveals that he's self-existent. Moses is intrigued by what he sees. There's a flame of fire coming out of a bush The bush is burning, but it's not burning up. It's not consumed by the flame. Now, what's God showing you here about himself? He's showing you he doesn't need the bush to keep the fire going. He doesn't depend on this world or anything in this world to give him life. This world is not fuel for him. It's not his energy source. 
doesn't need anything from this world in order to live. Instead, he has his own life and his own power. He comes with his own internal life source that keeps him going. And he underlines that reality for Moses when Moses asks him, verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses asks, who are you? Tell, tell me your name. Tell me what's true of you, what best defines you. And God simply says, I am. That's the most basic thing about our God, that he is, that he is eternally existent. Not that he was and then wasn't and started again, or that at some point he became, that is being started, or that at some point he won't be. But very simply, he is in such a way that he can sum himself up and sum his experience of himself up simply by saying, I am. I am eternally existent, eternally present, at all times, in all places. Most basic essence of our God. It's what has always been true of him. It's always going to be true of him. And because it's the most basic thing about God, it's the most foundational thing that we know about our world. That God's, I'm going to say it this way, that God's isness, his eternal existence is what? That's our context. That's what we live in. That he is in every place and in every situation. That we can never count him out. We can never pretend that he doesn't exist because he is. Which means that he is in the middle of all that we do. And so wherever we are, whatever we're doing, his life, his being, is the active ingredient. That's what Moses needs to know. He needs to remember it if he's going to go back to Egypt and do what God's called him to do. Moses tried once, thought he could handle things on his own, discovered that God's call was way beyond him. There was absolutely no match for it, and he ran disillusioned, done with it all. If he's going to now consider going back, he needs a source of life and power that's what? That's outside of himself. One that's not going to wear out, one that won't wear down. One that fuels itself, that doesn't need any proper situation or proper circumstances on this earth to energize it. And God says, that's me. <laughs> you don't have the strength to implement my plans. You don't have the strength to stick with them but I do. Factor me in. Do what I tell you. That will be enough to advance my agenda. Do that, and your efforts will not be in vain. Forget that. You'll pull back and won't try, because you'll have assessed that you're not up to the challenge. In other words, how do you go up against a world power? You don't unless you're going with the world maker. Back when Sally and I lived in West Philly, she came home one day, she was pretty upset. Told me that some teenagers had been throwing rocks at her on the way home. Grabbed one of the guys that I worked with and went out to talk to the kids, and we found one who 
got really scared, denied having any part in the rock throwing, was very willing to dime out some other people up the street. I decided to sort of play along like I thought he had nothing to do with it, and I politely asked him to relay my concerns to the other boys, which he eagerly promised to do, and that was the end of the rock throwing. Sally never had any problems again with rocks. Now, why did my words in that moment have such an impact? Y'all know I'm not very big. I was not nasty that day. I didn't scowl, threaten, didn't wave my arms or raise my voice. It was actually very calm, very polite. Why all the cooperation? Why the outcome? I believe that it was because Dave was with me. Dave stood behind me, all six, four, 260 pounds of Dave, wearing his black leather jacket, dark sunglasses, and a frown. Dave's a former Navy SEAL, has a black belt. He intimidates just by breathing. The impact that I had that day, my lack of fear in confronting those kids, did not come because of who I am. It came from who I was with. See, it's not about how big you are. It's not about how big the thing is that you're facing that God wants you to impact. What's important is how big the God is who goes with you. Remember him. Don't factor him out. And you can boldly step into what he's doing. So God is beautiful, self-existent, and holy. So holy that he already impacts this world everywhere he goes. Moses walks over to see the bush. God calls to him in verse 5 and says, Do not come near. Take, off, take your sandals off your feet, for the place you're standing is holy ground. Why is the ground holy? Because it's coming in contact with the bush that's coming in contact with the holy God. The holy one is impacting it, making this all holy. Now, what does it mean to be holy? It means to be completely distinct, separate, other than anything you've ever encountered here in a sin-defiled world. But God is not content to stay separate from his world, and so he brings his otherness into this world. He brings into this world his own ideas of what this world needs, his own values, his own ideas of how to run the world, his power to bring into being what the world needs, to make it everything that he wants it to be. That's all great. The world's so messed up, we need his ideas and his power to remake what's wrong here. But not only does he have the power to bring things into being, to make happen what he thinks should happen, he also has the power to remove anything that gets in the way of what he wants to have happen. Now, if you think about it, that's actually a very good thing. In a limited way, very, very limited way, you and I do the same thing. Years ago, we bought a fixer-upper that wasn't taken care of. Sally and I had ideas in mind of what it should look like, ideas that were not part of the building as it existed, but ideas that we brought into it from the outside. And in that sense, very small analogy, you can think of those ideas as holy with respect to the building. They are distinct, separate from it that we are bringing into it into the brokenness of that house. And yet there were things that were in the way of what we thought the house would be, and so those things had to go. Rotten boards had to get ripped out. New openings had to be cut in walls. Old supports had to be removed. New supports brought back in. Faulty wiring, bad plumbing needed to be replaced. 
insects living in the walls needed to be exterminated. Everything that did not produce what we had in mind had to be removed, which meant that we were active in removing them. Very small, small, tiny analogy of what it means to be holy, to be separate from and other, but to enter into a world that does not conform to your separateness. It means then that those things have to be removed. God's holiness combined with his power means that he can and will remove them. He's active, he's proactive in bringing this world in line with his holiness. And that's why Moses hides his face, verse 6. He's just come face to face with the holy God only what? He's been one of those things that's been outside of God's ideas. He was outside of what God thought was best when he was 40 years old. He's outside now as he resists doing what God wants. This is the tragedy of what it means to be part of the human race. We long for God. We know that this life can't be all there is, that it just never fully satisfies our cravings. Moses wants more. God wants more for Moses, shows Moses just a tiny sliver of who he is. Moses is drawn to God but can only come so close. Because what he wants will kill him if he gets any closer. Flame, fire, it's beautiful. And it's dangerous for anything that can be burned by it. It's tragic. You and I were made for more, a connection with the living God, which is exactly the same thing that we've disqualified ourselves from. And so point three, very quickly now. How can God reveal himself to Moses and Moses survive that revelation. See, there's a very big difference between the bush and Moses. The bush is acting completely in line with how God made it to be. It's perfectly obeying the one who made it. It is being and acting a bush, entirely aligned with God. Moses, on the other hand, is not aligned with God. Born spiritually dead, has lived out of step with God and with his plans. Moses is not holy. He's not separate from this sin-plagued world. He's part of it. He's unholy. And now by coming to see this remarkable sight, he's brought his unholiness into the presence of God. And so, as Tim Keller has put it, the question in this passage is not, why is the bush not burned up? That's the wrong question. The question is, why is Moses not burned up? Why is he not struck down? Why doesn't the fire of God consume him? And the answer has something to do with something that's so easy to skip over in verse 2. You notice in verse 2 that it's the angel of the Lord who appears to him. But the more that you read this, you realize this is a very special kind of angel. Because as the rest of the passage unfolds, unfolds what comes into view is God himself verse 4 it's the angel who appears to him but it's the Lord who saw that Moses turned aside to see this appearance verse 6 we learn that the one who talks to Moses says that he is the God of your father the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob verse 7 it's the Lord who speaks who said to Moses that he'd seen the misery of his people that verse 10 he would send Moses to Pharaoh 
Verse 11, Moses says to God, Moses knows this is no ordinary angel. Verse 14, said, this is God, the great I am who I am. What do you see then in the angel of the Lord? You see that with the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself is fully present. That when the angel of the Lord speaks, God speaks. And it's not just here in this passage that the angel appears and is expressing all of the elements of deity. A little bit later in the book, chapter 13, when God leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, he guides them in this tall pillar of cloud. But then very next chapter, chapter 14, we learn that it's the angel of the Lord who's been leading them in that pillar of cloud. There's an equality here between the angel of the Lord and the Lord such that you can talk about them in a way that's interchangeable, and yet there's a distinction between them. You see that distinction most clearly in chapters 32 and 33. It's the place where the Israelites sin against God. They create idols to worship, which brings up the question, is this the end of God being with his people? It was always God's desire to be with his people, but he's holy. Clearly they're not. They've just demonstrated that even after he rescued them. And so the question is, have they so sinned against him that there's no hope for them to have a friendship with him? And there's good reason to wonder that. God tells Moses, Exodus 32, to go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Sounds positive. Next chapter, Exodus 33, God says, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. And Moses is confused. <laughs> Who is this that's going with us? God's angel or, or God himself? And for Moses, this is not a theoretical question. He doesn't want to be where God is not. He tells God, Exodus 33, 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. That's the heart of a follower of God. Moses would rather wander around in the desert with God then enter into a land flowing with milk and honey without him. And that's the heart that God is looking for, someone who wants him as much as he wants them. And so he says, verse 17, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you found favor in my sight. I know you by name. That's when you realize what the angel does. The angel allows all of the presence of God to be with his people. To go with them without destroying them. See, God unshielded cannot go with his people. They're outside of his idea of what's best. He'll consume them on the way. But when the angel is present, God's unholy people can step into his presence without being destroyed by his holiness. The angel is not less than God. He's fully God. But he's that mode of deity that allows God to be with his people. You're getting hints here that even though our God is one being, that there are distinct persons here. Persons who share that same God essence that you can talk about as distinct from each other. As the Old Testament scholar Alec Maltier points out, 
There's only one other being in the entire scripture who, while retaining all the fullness of God, can accommodate himself to the company of sinners. There's only one who can affirm the righteous wrath of God while extending mercy to those who don't deserve it. It's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. He's fully God, completely holy. And yet he's able to live among unholy people without his holiness consuming them. Why is that? Because one day he would go to a lonely place to meet the holiness of God. Not in a bush in the wilderness, but on a tree, on a hill. Only this time, he couldn't be in the presence of God unharmed because he went there carrying the unholiness of his people. And this time, there was nothing holding back the holiness of God. And so Jesus endured the holy wrath of God against all the unholiness of his people until what? Until all the unholiness was gone. How do you know that? In the book of Acts, chapter 2, something amazing happens. Something that verse 33 explains as the resurrected Jesus pouring out his Holy Spirit on his people was something that you could see. As Jesus' followers were together that day, there was the sound of a violent wind blowing from heaven. Sound filled the house. And they saw flames of fire that then separated and came to rest on each of them. Flames of fire, the visible presence of God that showed God was in the room with them. That then God was in them, filling them, living with them. Not in inanimate bushes, but in images of God. Without what? Without burning them or consuming them. So that they now live permanently in the presence of the beautiful, self-existent, holy God. And so do you. If you've asked Jesus to rescue you from darkness, to forgive you for your unholiness, he gives the same spirit to all of his followers. Forget that, and you'll move toward arrogance or anxiety. Remember that, and you'll be equipped to impact this world in whatever way God wants to use you. Lord Jesus, you have won for us a salvation that's beyond our ability to understand. Lord, there are depths and layers here to, to what you've made possible. Lord, you have allowed us to come directly into your throne room. You have given yourself to us so that you live within us. Lord, thank you for that sacrifice that we're about to remember together. Thank you for this communion meal. Let me invite you to...